Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast that helps you develop, focus, and create better teamwork, better leadership, and a better culture for your organization. Now keep in mind, while we say organization, that organization can be your family. We focus in on things that can help you develop in every aspect of your life. Today, we're in season three, and we're excited to have with us Erin Jewell joining us today. And from a young age, Erin was raised with the belief that she could do anything. And that's awesome, because my father taught me a lot the same. With a degree from Villanova and a widely optimistic outlook, she found success in early sales leadership positions in the pharmaceutical and medical device industry, such as Pfizer, Boston Scientific, and Medtronic. From a first-year MVP at Pfizer to many accolades later, she earned the top role for medical devices. She then jumped four positions to a global director of three business lines, $80 million in revenue, and 200 direct and indirect reports. After 15 years in the healthcare sector, she decided it was time to take a big leap, and she co-founded her own healthcare startup that built online wellness platforms. We're excited to learn more about all of that today. Today, Erin is an executive mindset and growth coach, an international speaker and professional leadership at Villanova University. As a coach, Erin works with team leaders to make the most out of their teams so they can become more effective leaders. Erin Jewell, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. Thank you so much, Greg. It's great to be on the show today. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> yeah, we're excited to have you here because we start realizing, especially through this pandemic, that there's so much about our personal side that carries over to our professional side and from our professional side that goes right back to our personal lives. And that is a huge thing that we really never started to address in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Even into the 80s, we didn't even look at it. But in the 90s, there started to be a little recognition of that. So tell us a little bit about your background. You know, we know from the bio and your introduction that you were, you know, you were in sales and you know that through the Med, uh, with Medtronic and Pfizer and Boston Scientific. But tell us a little bit about what got you there. And then what was it that triggered for you to go into this mindset area? Well, Greg, it's a great word that you use what triggered because, you know, it, it definitely is not a linear pathway that I've been on, although I'm not really sure that many of us are finding ourselves on a very, very much a linear pathway these days. You know, I think the paradigm is just shifting across the board. And I do credit business professionals in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s for a lot of what we are experiencing today for being pioneers in this way. I mean, really just you know, standing up for well-being or even just burning out and enough employers recognizing that, which is allowing humans like me to do the work I do today. But to tell you a little bit about my story, I mean, you know, I was raised in a middle-class home. I was afforded many opportunities to excel from a very young age. I played three sports a year. I went to really good schools. I excelled academically and athletically. So as you mentioned, from a very young age, I lived in Spain when I was a kid. You know, I was told I, I was really capable of doing anything I wanted to do, and that stuck. 
So by the time I graduated from Villanova for the first time in 2002, I was recruited by Pfizer to become a sales professional. And I excelled in that role so much so that I, um, I got the attention of Boston Scientific, a very large and highly reputable uh, medical device, global medical device company. And for those who are in the healthcare sector know that the transition from pharmaceutical sales to medical device sales is not so straightforward and many times can be very difficult to do. So when I was first recruited into that sales role, I was very proud and I also continued to honor this work ethic that I had, which was you know, doing whatever it took to get the job done. And I did that. And I performed so powerfully at Boston Scientific that I was then recruited by Medtronic into another more consultative, highly technical, highly clinical, highly sought after sales professional role. And when I was in that role, I was on call 24 seven. I supported cases in the operating rooms. I worked closely with uh, different types of vascular surgeons and other surgeons. And it was a really intense experience. And it was one that, again, I was also very proud of and I felt like my skills were being tapped into. So as you can probably already see, it early on, from very early on in my career, work ethic was strong. You know, I, I had a capacity for learning quickly, getting up to speed quickly, and I was an earner very early on as well. So all of these roles were quite lucrative for me, which was certainly an added bonus and motivator. So then eventually I decided while in that sales role, I wanted to go back to school. I wasn't really interested in carrying the bag for the rest of my career. Because I was uh, fluent in Spanish, I wanted to go to the international side of the business. So Medtronic approved it. They approved for me to go back to get my MBA. I did. After that, I moved down to Miami and I became the physician and rep trainer for a couple of the businesses down there. And I was on an airplane 80% of the time traveling internationally performing and developing curriculums for trainings in 46 countries, covering cases down there. And that went so well that I was promoted uh, by about four levels from an individual contributor role to a business leader role. And not only did I obtain this position, they also gave me an additional $18 million business in surgical-based therapies. In addition to the peripheral and endovascular businesses, I was responsible for, which I never had any background in. So obviously they trusted my ability to get up to speed with that content. And I did. And, you know, in all honesty, I think this is where in my career, things really started to shift because I had achieved at that point, what I thought was my dream job. And at the uh, young age of 32, I felt extremely lucky to be placed in that position. I was one of the youngest leaders in the market by about 12 years. I was one of the only women and I was one of the only North Americans, the only other North American on the team at the time. Well, there were two and one of them was the president. So, you know, it was definitely, I had arrived at this place where I had my dream job. And like I said, this is where everything really started to change. I started to face challenges like I had never faced before. And because I hadn't been really, there were a few gaps and we can get into this in a, in a minute, but basically what happened was the transition from technical expert to formal leader was choppy at best. And so I struggled tremendously in that role and I started getting sick a lot and my physical and emotional and mental well-being really started to be impacted. So after some time in that role, a decision was made that included my input 
to relocate me to another market and pursue a marketing director role. So in this role, I would have more of a focus scope on the marketing side of things. And it was in Asia Pacific. So I moved to California. But at that point in my heart, I knew that I was going to leave the company and I was going to create a business platform that would empower business professionals to treat their well-being as important as their financial success. So in 2015, I resigned from Medtronic and I co-founded the healthcare startup BMC2 No Limits. And that ran its course for about three and a half years. We had 10 integrative therapists around the country. I invested about half a million of my own money into the business and we had some success. We sold these service solutions to physicians, to business professionals, but ultimately, were unable to secure outside investment because IT was not a core competency. So our model was not scalable. So we closed the doors on that in October of 2018. And at that point, I also realized I far more enjoyed the therapeutic aspects of the work that I was doing, the coaching, the consulting, the facilitation, the content creation, than actually running a company. So that's when I began, I, I started Erin Jewel Consulting and I have been in the healthcare consulting and coaching space ever since I became a certified coach with the International Coaching Federation and it has been a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, that's a lot jam-packed in there in a few short years for sure. Um, you mentioned something about all the traveling. Um, were you getting sick during all that, especially some of the international travel? Is that kind of what led you to some of this that you're doing today? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when I first, when I was first brought down to Miami, I was on a plane within a week. And, you know, if you, I actually documented all of my trips in a journal and I would usually have two or three days home and then I would be on a plane again. And a lot of the time I would fly overnight to arrive at the office or the hospital the next morning in the market. So, you know, Latin America is in a very similar time zone for the most part as the U.S., you know, Brazil, two to three hours difference on the East Coast, depending on the time of year. So generally I would get on a plane at night and I would arrive in the morning and I would either have my suit on or I would have the driver take me to the hotel, get my suit on, go straight into the office or the hospital. So a lot of things started to happen. I wasn't really sleeping on the, paint, on the plane. I was using medication and I was using alcohol to help me sleep on the plane, which for those who travel frequently know that that is a recipe for disaster because Absolutely. it's really hard on the body you're not really getting much sleep. And so, you know, I would go to my doctor when I was in Miami and I would let him know I was going on a trip and he created a travel kit for me. So I would have everything. I would have broad spectrum antibiotics. I would have medications for malaria, for all sorts of different bugs that I could get when I was traveling. And I would go to the pharmacy and they would know me by my first name. And at the age of 32, somebody who's a runner, I'm an ultra marathoner. I've been a runner most of my life. I've been an athlete all of my life. To have a pharmacy know you by name when you don't have any major health issues is kind of a flag, right? Um, so also my emotional and my mental health was really affected because at that point in my life, I hadn't really been taught healthy coping mechanisms. So what I learned along the way were kind of survival techniques. So things to sort of numb the issues as they arose. And like I said, I had this mentality of whatever it takes. And so whatever it takes for me meant putting myself on the back burner. Mm -hmm. You were 
in that in my terminology I use, you were treating a lot of the symptoms and not necessarily the problem. Sure, right, exactly. Exactly. And that that's you're right, that's a recipe. I mean, there were years that I was on 150 to 200 flights a year. And you do that kind of flights up and down, it's 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 absolutely crazy to try and do that. And I spent a hundred some I think I spent 140 nights in hotels one year, averaging 1.3 nights per hotel stay. So it's that's just crazy. There were times I was driving from one city to another and I was dozing off and that was just not a good thing. So tell me a little bit about where you are today. You've started your mindset and growth side of the business to take the things that weren't taught in the 60s and 70s, bringing them to the forefront. You're bringing them to the forefront for leaders so they can have a more mindful experience, become better leaders, produce more, earn more. Where do you fall on that? So any, just like any vision, we have an opportunity to conceptualize that vision, right? And my, mm -hmm. and, and the vision that I had came from gaps that I identified. Here I was a successful business prof professional in the corporate sector, right? And I was, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars were being invested in me each year. I mean, that's, that's not to include everything else, to, into my leadership development alone. So what I saw was all this money by these world-recognized companies, right? All this money was being invested in me, and yet there was still this huge gap in my process that ultimately affected my ability to be an effective leader. So that's where a lot of my motivation and inspiration came from. So today, the work that I do is to bring this aspect of a mindful approach to leadership into the corporate sector. And there are many different ways that I go about doing this. It's, it's through coaching, it's through group trainings and facilitations. But the idea is this, what I found, now listen, I was, I was a formal leader, okay? So I had a team that I could pretty easily influence, right? Like, so when I started getting into meditation and Qigong and you know even yoga a little bit more, I started sharing these things with my team. I can remember, one time my team, my sales manager in Brazil was just really struggling. He was working through the weekends. He didn't know how to turn it off. And so I bought him this, this um, chakra healing CD set. And it was the coolest thing because I don't know, I think in any other setting, he might've said, no way, I'm not touching that. But I was his boss and I said, listen, start playing this start playing this when you're working and I don't want you responding to emails on the weekends. And he did it and it was transformative for him. And that's a whole other story. But I was in this position in the corporate sector where as a leader, I was telling my team, hey, you, you need to take better care of yourself. And they were doing it. But if that, if you don't have a leader in the organization doing that, it's gonna be really hard for you to set that kind of a tone, right? So the work that I do today is with the leader. And I work with the leader and I say, what can you do to prioritize well-being for you first? And then how can you share that knowledge with your teams in a way that empowers them? And the reason I'm doing all of this, Greg, is not only because the health of humans matters to me, but what I also learned, that Brazil sales manager became so much more productive when he was taking that break 
And I'll share this and then, and then you can head into the next question here, but Harvard Business Review has a fantastic article on this. It's called Making of a Corporate Athlete. This article was published back in 2001. And in fact, it's so widely used that companies like Medtronic have what are known as corporate athlete programs for executives. And so the article talks about the differences between training a professional athlete and training an executive. And the main difference that is found is that professional athletes are trained to pause. And our, the article gives examples of that. That's fascinating. You know, it kind of goes back. Um, I think the quote was, you cannot brighten the path of another without brightening the path of yourself. So you've got to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. And I, I read a book on um, coaching years ago, and I don't coach, but I read a book on it. It was talking about, first, you have to become selfish. And I took, I took offense to that at first. I was like, no, I can't think about me. Then once I understood what they were talking about, it made much more sense. So what are some of the key components that a leader can take for themselves to build a better team, which will increase productivity, which increase their own self-worth within the organization? So it's a great question. So it's important to keep in mind first what the leadership tendencies are. And what I'm talking, what I'm talking about now is within the US culture. Because, you know, the cultures that tend to be more patriarchal or more of a tendency of, of certain leadership characteristics that are generally defined as masculine, not always the case, but these cultures tend to have very strong muscles of leadership in certain aspects and then are underdeveloped in other ways. And so leaders everywhere, men and women, have an opportunity to develop certain leadership muscles that actually allow them to empower their teams further. So with that, str uh, strengths, taking a strengths-based approach, building trust and rapport, building a sense of community, effective verbal and nonverbal communication, and then finally, holistic listening. So it, and we're not going to have time to do this today, and we can touch on ones of interest, but if you really break down those five elements, they do not qualify as the typical leadership tendency. So what do I mean by that? So leaders have a tendency to feel, to be recognized for their initiation, their activation, they, they're providers, they're givers, right? There's a lot of output happening with leadership, right? It's about how I sound, the words that I use, which mm -hmm. is part of it, but up to 55% of communication, leadership communication alone is actually nonverbal. Yeah. So how do I influence the nonverbal? Well, if I'm not tapped in to my emotional and mental state of being, it's going to be very difficult for me to guide and direct my nonverbal communication in a positive way. Also, if I'm not touching base with my emotional and mental well-being, it's going to be very difficult for me as a leader to have any awareness of the state of my team. So if I want to build rapport and earn the trust of my team, for example, and yet I'm not connected to where I am emotionally and mentally, then I'm not going to feel like I can connect with them. 
And if they don't feel like they are connecting with me, they are not going to trust me as much and it's going to take longer for me to build rapport. What about strengths? As a leader, if I'm not checking in with the things that I'm really good at, and the things that I really enjoy, not with the organization things I'm good at, it's gonna be really hard for me to understand the strengths of my team. Sense of community. How many leaders are really thinking about sense of community? And then holistic listening. I could spend hours on that alone. If we are, if, if there's output happening, if there's initiation happening and activation happening, there's no way that we can be receiving or listening. It's not possible, right? So there's four levels of listening. And the first two are active listening, not three and four, the first two. So this idea that I'm sitting here, you know, and we're talking and I'm waiting for you to finish, finish talking so that I can respond with something and I'm listening to you and what you're saying so that I can respond with something else to say, that's active listening. And that's a level of listening that requires skill to cultivate. But when we get to four, it's so much more holistic than that. And as leaders, it's like, it's like, when was the last time you, you know, or anyone who's listening, you found yourself in a conversation and in, in an interaction where the person's talking and you are completely engaged in who they are the story that you know about them, what they're sharing with you, what matters to them, to the extent that you don't even have anything to say when they're finished, right? We, as leaders, we aren't doing enough of this, right? So it's, um, and it's not, it's not our fault. It's not the fault of the leader. We just weren't really taught that this is what matters, yeah. but by doing taught, all of this, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was say, we've been taught more multitasking through there. So we're trying to listen here and think what we're going to say here. And that may be a little bit of active listening, but it's not the holistic and it's, it's causing problems and it's not causing problems just at work. <laughs> well, and that's a really good point because here's, and you talked about this, you mentioned this, you said, you know, like our worlds do collide. The personal and professional worlds absolutely do collide. And how we show up at work influences how we show up at home. And you know what, if certain behaviors are praised at work, like for example, somebody who's not a great listener, but they're, they're chasing that number and they're achieving those sales goals. Well, that person may go home and feel really comfortable and justified in not feeling engaged or present with their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now your, I think it was your second component was trust. Mm -hmm. Can you dive a little deeper on that? And the reason I say that is of all the interviews we've done on the teamwork advantage, some aspect of trust has come up in more than 80% of our interviews. And it is so critical, whether it's a, a level of team trust or whether it's a level of trust the leader or the leader trust the team or wherever. So tell us a little bit about your avenues of trust. Right. So it's a, it's a great question. And it's an important word to ask the meaning of, right? Because I, I, I agree. I think people are, everybody kind of has maybe a little bit of a different perspective of what the word trust even means. For mm -hmm. me and the work that I'm doing, the word trust is about relatability. Okay, so 
as a leader, I'm coming into this thing with a beginner's mindset in some ways. So mm -hmm. I'm sharing about past mistakes. I'm sharing about challenges I've faced. I'm, and I'm doing this all to let my team know that it's going to be okay for them to make mistakes. And in fact, I want them to explore and experiment. If I come in as a leader and I've got it figured out, so it's like, it's like that learner's mindset and that fixed mindset, right? I'm in execution mode or am I in innovation mode? And as a leader, I want a little bit of both, right? So I want my, my team to be able to execute and produce and engage, right? I also want my team to be innovative and creative because what we know about success what got us here is not going to get us there. Thank you, Marshall Goldsmith, for that, right? <laughs> so trust is all about relatability, and trust is all about, as a leader, I'm letting you know, hey, there are things that I'm not good at, right? You know, the, the CEO of Southwest Airlines, I, I, I butcher this every time, but he says something to the effect of, I had to hire 36,000 people to do all the things that I don't know how to do. Like, like saying, like, I had to hire that many people because I am that ill-equipped. Like you know, like, let us, let us have that beginner mindset, even when we're put in that position of power, right? Right. right. Dan Sullivan out of, uh, I think, Toronto, Canada used to say, find your unique ability, find what you're absolutely the best at, and delegate everything else. And so it's such a powerful statement there. So what are some of the best ways? Because mindfulness is there and I believe mindfulness is getting one of those buzzwords today that is overused in so many different aspects, yet it is so powerful and we need it. We've got to be mindful of our employees. We've got to be mindful of certain things without, without offending people, but also without necessarily the old expression of walking on eggshells. So what can we do? What can leaders do? What are ways that they can integrate some mindfulness in their lives daily to kind of center them a little bit. It's a great point. And, and, you know, just looking at the definition of mindfulness, because it's going to be a little bit different for everybody kind of to your point that it's so sad. It's so saturated. It's such a saturated word. You know, it's a, it's a coaching technique when people use, when my clients use certain words, I'm going to say, what is the meaning of that word? And it might be a very commonly used word. And in fact, the more commonly used the word is, the more likely I'm going to be to say, well, what does that mean to you? So okay. to me and, and the work that I've done and the process that I've been through with, with the different programs and certifications that I've gone through, mindfulness is really about this ability to feel engaged in the present moment, right? So let's repeat that again. I want to make sure clear. Say that again for me. So it's feeling engaged in the present moment. Okay. Okay. That's what mindfulness. And so with that as a foundation, think about the five key considerations that I mentioned, right? We have a strengths-based approach. We have trust. We have building a sense of community. We have communication. We have holistic listening. From my perspective and the work that I do, none of that is happening successfully without this foundation of, I am making a choice to feel engaged in this present moment. Now, I can say that until I'm blue in the face. If I'm not practicing it somehow, I'm going to be in trouble. It's probably not, it's not going to feel good to me. No, it's right? going to be if, hypocritical. If, it will, and it's not right. Like, it's like, if we try something, like we want to try the thing 
and we want to see the benefit. Mm -hmm. And then when we see the benefit and it feels good to us, then we're going to do it again and again and again, yeah, right? Yeah. We're going to want more. We're going to desire more. So it, it works that way with mindfulness. And there's a million ways to feel engaged in the present moment. A nice way to develop a practice that teaches us or helps us to tap into that, it triggers that desire to feel, to feel engaged is meditation. Now, meditation is not crisscross applesauce, you know, ohm symbol hands all day long. Yeah. Like, and trust me, I've tried it. I moved to Hawaii. I lived at a Buddhist temple. I tried the thing. It wasn't my thing. And, you know, I'm meant to be here in the world the way that I am. So as somebody who once thought meditation was quackery, you know, um, a couple minutes a day, get what, what I recommend to clients often is wake up in the morning. Don't look at your messages. Ideally, you have an alarm clock to set. If not, set your iPhone alarm for two to three minutes and just sit in bed. And what tends to come up after a set of days is clients will say, oh, I just kept thinking I, I was, and they judge themselves for their thinking. Well, I'm here to tell you, there's a really good chance that you will always have thoughts when you are meditating. That's not the problem. You're not supposed to erase the thoughts. And some people might have a little bit of a different take, but from my perspective, I've been meditating since two actively since 2012. And the majority of the time I've, I've got to bring myself back in the meditation. I, I come back to the breath or I'll set an intention before the practice. Like, you know, today I want to experience uh, joy. So when I'm in meditation, when I'm just sitting there and when the time is passing, if my mind starts to wander, I'll say the word joy or I'll start listening to my breath. And it usually brings me back. The other thing is sometimes I let the thoughts happen. I do. I pretend they're, you know, they just kind of come and go little clouds. Because here's the thing, the thoughts, we don't have to engage them. The thoughts can happen and we don't have to pay attention to them. They're going to happen. We have like 40,000 a day or something, 70,000 a day, yeah. right? And so two or three minutes, what about through the day? Is it possible to finish a Zoom call, do something, come out of a meeting, come out of a sales call, get off the phone with a customer if you're in customer service and just sit there for two or three minutes to recenter yourself. Is that possible? It sure is. And if you are truly interested in this, get that HBR article, look it up online, mm -hmm. making of a corporate athlete. It actually recommends five minute breaks every 90 minutes, which I think is not enough. I recommend uh, five minutes, at least in every hour, especially these days because so much is virtual. And in those few minutes, you can actually, you can just sit there, you know, just it's, so the example they give is the tennis player in the HBR article. And they say, the tennis player between the sets will stand there and play with the nets and their, the um, strings in their racket, or they'll confidently wave to the crowd, or they might bounce the ball. It's all to distract them from what they just did and what they're about to do. So they don't out about what they just just did and they don't ruminate about what they're about to do i, th they I are always thought i always thought that that was just uh not so much a distraction for them from what they just did but it was a routine they had to do certain things more superstitious 
That's fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 meant it's so so when you take those breaks, as you had shared, when you're when somebody's taking those breaks throughout the day, the only ask is that it it's something that doesn't have to do with what they just did or what they're about to do. Okay. So five minutes every 90 is what they recommend. You're talking about a little bit more than that. So that's fascinating. Um, you said something a little earlier uh, from your mistakes and things of that nature. I can't remember exactly how you said that, but you were talking about mistakes. And I'm a believer that we learn from our mistakes. So what was one of the biggest mistakes, hiccups in your career? And what did you learn from it? Yeah, I mean, I call them growth spurts because the, the most growth happens for me when the mistakes are being made. So it was in my leadership role in Latin America. I mean, I just, as a leader, I defaulted to certain behaviors that were fear-based and it had me show up as not an engaging leader, not a leader who was interested in connecting with the team. I became very focused on the numbers and Ultimately, I lost the trust of my team because of it. So, you know, that inspired the, the second wind of my career trajectory, which is to study mm -hmm. and to become someone who can help other leaders um, not necessarily not travel the path I traveled, right? Because everybody has their journey, but just to help leaders feel equipped with the tools and the mindset necessary to take an approach that is an abundance-based approach. Like things are working out in my favor. This is a good situation. There's nothing to be afraid of. I have the time I need. I can be patient with myself. So, you know, I think what mistake did I make? I was young. I was inexperienced. I was also, you know, so focused on people pleasing, to be honest with you, throughout my career, I just wanted to please my leaders, I wanted to please my peers, I wanted to please everyone else around me that I just really lost touch with myself. And I lost touch with what I was good at. And so ultimately, I wasn't able to really pull from my gifts and talents when I needed to. That's interesting. How now, knowing that, what what tool technique do you use today to bring you back to center to do that? If you ever see yourself doing that again, and I'm assuming you do because most all of us do fall back to some level of that. What do you do? What what, what does Erin do to pull her back to center point? Oh, such a wonderful question. You know, there's a few things. So first of all, I have a phenomenal support system. Listen, I'm a coach. I have a coach. So, you know, I definitely have blinders up. So, you know, I am constantly touching base with my coach and my support system, my husband, you know, people that I, it's actually quite a short list of people that I really do trust. And I know that they are here for my success. They are here to see me be successful. They, and, and that is that period end of story. So they are there to help me. Um, in those moments, I have a few exercises. I, I have I have an awareness to identify when it's happening some of the time. I've also allowed myself to be more receptive to feedback. I've also recognized the, the importance of um, honoring where somebody else is coming from in a way that I never used to. So even if I don't agree with what somebody is saying about how I'm showing up, I'm learning to hold space for that. And that has happened because I've become more accepting of myself I've become more accepting of who I am, 
you know, my gifts and my flaws. Um, one exercise that I do really enjoy and that I'll share with every, everybody that's listening is find a picture from when you were a child. So whatever image just came up, whatever age just came up, roll with that one. Maybe you have the actual picture already in your mind. Sometimes people do. I see you nodding, right? As soon as you said that, I have an exact picture that comes to my mind. Yeah. How old were you? I see. It would have been October 67. I was nine. Oh, yes. That's wonderful. Mine's from when I was nine, too. And I was going. My father had gotten tickets to go see game three of the World Series in Baltimore. And I can remember standing out front of the driveway. My mom took the picture of my dad and me. And I can just boom, right there it is. I was wearing a sport coat, a red sport coat to go to a baseball game. <laughs> That's so fantastic. So, so, so stay with that picture. So, so what happens is take that picture. Now I tell my clients, you can take, snap a picture of it, make it your home screen on your phone, put it next to your computer, put it in your bathroom mirror, a place where you're going to see it throughout the day. And the next time you find yourself in a place of, of self-judgment or, you know, negative self-talk, or, or you might default to some of those behaviors or tendencies that don't feel so good. Look at that picture and think about, would I talk this way to this little, in your case, this little guy, would I say wow. the things that I'm currently saying? Yeah. Right. Wow. You feeling that? Yeah. That's, I'm going to use the profound word because that really is, what would you say to yourself at that point? That's powerful. Yeah. yeah. And there's times I would answer, sure. And there are times it's like, nope, not a chance. <laughs> and then you when know, you I, say the nope, you realize, okay, let's get back to track. And that brings you back to point. Yeah. I know the blue angels and the thunderbirds both fly on something called center point. And they relate everything to a certain point on a GPS latitude, longitude location. And so that's what I started to try and focus on is what's my center point. And so that's why uh, that you just told me how to get back to it because we get deviated. Uh, we get deviated. We get deviant. We get away from it. And we, we fall off the, the track, the rails, if you will, the train jump, the tracks, whatever terminology we want to use. So that brings me to a question. Once you've got yourself figured out, and I look at that little picture, and by the way, making it as the screen on your phone is powerful. It's the one I've got on there now is amazing and does that for me in so many ways. This might do it a little bit differently. But the next question is, once we know what we do as a leader, once I know that, okay, I got to get myself back, I got to be more mindful, I've got to build a trust, all this stuff, once I've done that, and you see a member of your team who is not engaged, when you see that member who is just la la land or they're, they're going through the motions or whatever, what are some techniques that you could do to bring them back and re-engage them? So this almost sounds a little bit more like professional isolation, even where you, where you have that team member kind of isolating from the group, which is, which is very common, hard to detect. And it's something that, ha you know, it just, we, for some reason, we kind of tend to leave those people alone. Um, the first thing you want to do is you want to approach them about it and ask them, 
what support they need. I mean, this is a, an emotional process. If somebody's not feeling like they belong in a group or if, the, if they seem to be isolating, it's probably because they, they're not feeling part of for some reason. And the tr it's a slippery slope because once somebody doesn't feel part of, that's when the stories really start in the mind of, oh, they just, they don't like me. They don't appreciate my skills and talents. And it could be all, it's like always noise. It's always noise. There might be some element of truth, but the first thing is as a leader, you know, bringing some of these tools to that individual and that mindful approach and engaging them and just listening, you know, saying, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, um, talk to me, how's it going? And if, and if they believe that team play, that employee is not going to be open with them and communicating that they haven't built that trust, find someone who can, you know, maybe another team member or, or another advocate to have a conversation, but by no means leave that person alone. Exercise the gift of communication and listening to engage that human because there is a reason that that's happening and there is something the leader can do about it. Yeah. And in that case, it's also whether you're the leader of a business, multi-million dollar business, uh, a small startup, or your family, let's keep them engaged. So that, that, that absolutely builds. Yep, absolutely. Big time. Wow. We have a, you know, I, I don't want to say we have a responsibility to do that because it, I, you know, we put enough pressure on ourselves. We have an opportunity to do those things. Now you sound like Zig Ziglar. <laughs> you know what Zig used to say about the alarm clock, don't you? It's not yeah. an alarm clock. It's an opportunity clock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I love that. Yes. I still remember the opportunity clock. <laughs> Uh, Aaron, Joe, we could go on for a long time, especially getting into holistic and talking about more about trust and building all that. We've been on here now for about 40 minutes and that's, that's enough time for people to get to work. I think they're starting to drive back to work. So, um, good luck with your work at Villanova. I thank you for being a guest here on the teamwork advantage. Uh, anything you want to leave us with as a closing thought? Well, thank you so much for the time today, Greg. And I would just say, you know, for anyone who's listening, you know, just be patient with yourself. Um, you know, anything that we're working on, any process or practice is going to have its ebbs and flows, peaks and troughs. So just, you know, the more we recognize that and, and sort of own that for ourselves, the, the smoother the ride. So yeah, being patient with ourselves and giving ourselves credit sometimes is the hardest thing we do. There's no doubt about that. Well, once again, Aaron Jewell, thank you for being a guest on the Teamwork Advantage. Once a week on the Teamwork Advantage, you get impactful ideas that you can use immediately in your personal life and your professional life to be able to help you create a better team, become a better leader, and create a better culture. Until next week, remember, having a good day is just being average. So go out and make today an excellent and exceptional day. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.